I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. It's out! The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga is now available everywhere books are sold. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive practice to yoga. It's available on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for a very special episode of the Beyond Trauma podcast. I rushed to put this episode together after realizing I probably should have had it earlier. Very important topic um, and a very important person. So today I have on Dr. Jessa Navide. She's a licensed clinical psychologist who has a passion for suicide prevention stemming from lived and professional experience. She believes that by teaching skills to engage in compassionate conversations with those experiencing suicidal thoughts, everyone can play a role in suicide prevention. This belief led her to become and assist applied suicide intervention skills trainer. Dr. Jessa is a graduate of Three and a Half Acres Yoga Trauma Sensitive Yoga Teacher Training, who has experienced that this form of yoga is a powerful healing resource in suicide prevention work. And I just love her testimony to this. And you're going to hear why she explains in a very clinical and researched way why the style of yoga works. But we also talk very intimately about her story about signs of suicide, how we can look out for them, what to do if we think someone in our lives might be suicidal, and just a lot of the questions that you might be asking yourself about suicide, a rather taboo topic, a topic that folks sometimes are afraid to talk about and something that we want to get more comfortable talking about. And Jess is going to explain why. And we also shout out her upcoming workshop this Thursday, 6 to 8, which you can register for off the Three and a Half Acres Yoga website. Of course, we are talking about suicidal thoughts in this episode. Um, so just be aware that I think it's done very, in a really enriching way, in a way that we can learn from and we weave it in with recommendations for friends, family, and clinicians, do's and don'ts. Of course, take care of yourself when you're listening to this episode as you would listening to any of these episodes, and we provide some resources at the end of the episode um, for those who might need them. So um, I hope you enjoy. And as usual, please let me know what you're thinking about the podcast. Thanks so much. So hi, Jessa. Thank you for spending this MLK day with me. Hi, Lara. I am so excited to be here today. Really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, we're kind of expediting this episode because it came to me suddenly, oh my gosh, I have to have Jess on the show. Mm-hmm. And 
we should get this out before your workshop, which I want to make sure we shout out to folks. So we'll, we'll make sure to talk about the upcoming workshop. And I also wanted to just preface this before we dive in with, as you know, you know, we're talking about suicide, suicide prevention and awareness. And as much as you're comfortable about your own experience, first of all, for folks listening to take care of themselves, but also for you, Jessa, um, you know, I don't want you to feel any pressure in our conversation. Please share as you feel comfortable and supported and resourced. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. And I am definitely very open to sharing my story on this podcast. I'm intentional about where I choose to share it, but Mm. I think this this feels like a, a safe space to do so. Well, thank you. I know you're an avid listener, which made me feel so good. (laughs) And maybe we could start by telling folks how we met. What was that experience like for you? Because I guess we met online, huh? We did meet online. So I came to New York City back in August of 2020. So still at the more at the beginning of the pandemic for the last year of graduate school where I did my training at Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx. And I was very eager to maintain my Ashtanga practice. And just through Googling, I, I found your shala, which had transitioned to being virtual. And it was so wonderful to be able mm. to practice with you for, it was a full year and it was a really difficult year, as I'm sure it was for many at, at the height of the pandemic, working at a hospital in New York City. And I I really feel like having your practice every single morning, I think it's really what allowed me to be able to show up as much as I could fully show up doing the really challenging work I was doing in the hospital setting. I was mm. so grateful for being able to have you as a teacher during that time. Well, you helped me as well, because you were one of the people that really showed up, I think, every day, like you said, you know, um, whatever you could do that day. And that kept me going, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, that gave me purpose and kept me like I, I had somewhere to be for other people that was online and seeing you there. And I always remember like your background, <laughs> and, like, like a beautiful fabric hanging on your door. <laughs> and yes. yeah. And yeah, it was like, well, she's showing up every day. So that kept me going and, you know, gave me some purpose and some reason. <laughs> so I appreciate that. I also really um, felt for you because you had just moved to the area, like you said, and I was like, wow, she must feel really lonely. I, I was feeling probably the most lonely I felt in my entire life at that time. And so, you know, what was so beautiful about being able to practice with you was that it was, it was for me a really beautiful connection. And it was powerful to me that, you know, I wasn't with you in person, but despite that, I was still able to feel that sense of really building trust and feeling Mm. a sense of immense gratitude of being able to have that space with you every single morning. And I'm so grateful to hear that it was impactful for you as well, that I was showing up because, yeah, I did have that awareness that there was such a big impact to your shala as a transition to being virtual that, you know, I'm sure a lot less people showing up than you had experienced in in the past. Yeah. Yeah. That was a huge transition, as you mentioned, for many of us. And 
the shallow went virtual and eventually shut down so I could focus my work um, on the nonprofit and also so I could move my family out of the city. So a lot of changes. But since then, we've been able to meet in person and really continue to get to know each other and develop our relationship. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I remember the first time I got to meet you in person was going to Timothy's. I might be mispronouncing this, but it's a Brazilian martial art dance called Capyra. Yes. Such a wonderful way to first meet you in person. Yes. I remember I had that with you. I've had that with Danielle, who was the president of the junior board of Three and a Half Acres, where I've known someone for a long time. I had that with Nicolina recently. (laughs) A lot of people where it was like so weird to, to almost like see you in the, in, you know, in the flesh there in I the know. park. <laughs> I think that was the 10 year anniversary of land yoga. And even though we had gone mm. virtual, I really wanted to like honor that 10 year mark. Um, I wanted to make it to the 10 year mark. Oh, our mm. last year was virtual and it was so great that you and so many others came out and Timothy has since joined the board of Three and a Half Acres, and I've yes. interviewed him on this podcast. It was a great interview yes. folks can go back to. And you went through the Three and a Half Acres Yoga, trauma-informed yoga teacher training. When did you do that, and what inspired you to get trained as a trauma-informed yoga teacher? Yeah, so I was able, fortunate enough to do your training pretty soon after I first met you. I met you in August of 2020, and then October of that year, you were offering the yoga teacher training through Thay. And I would say a few different source of ins- sources of inspiration. The first off was just, I was inspired by the way that you were teaching yoga. It was my first experience of being taught in this more trauma-sensitive way that I found personally, it felt just really empowering. And I was curious. I had never taught yoga, but I was curious to at some point step into that role and felt really strongly that if I'm going to be teaching, that I want to be teaching in this way that allows people to feel this really deep sense of feeling like they can connect with choice, feeling really able to connect to, as I show up on the map today, what does my body need from me? And that's really how I felt through being able to be a student of yours and felt really inspired to learn the skills to be able to teach in that way. That's beautiful, Jessa, and really reflects the core intentions of the nonprofit and my teaching style and the style we're teaching through there. And and you've been able to, to share yoga with um, a couple different organizations, partner organizations through say. I, I know the one that's sticking out in my mind was a, a bilingual class. Yeah. Can you share about that? Yes. So I was really interested in bringing yoga to Spanish-speaking individuals. Uh, When I came to New York City working at Lincoln Hospital, I was mostly providing therapy in Spanish. And that really heightened my awareness of just really wanting to expand the resources available to the Spanish-speaking community. So I found an organization called Mixtexa, which was primarily serving Uh, Mexican-American immigrants. And so I was able to provide cheer virtual yoga uh, in Spanish 
for some time uh, back in, uh, it would have been 2021. Really enjoyed that. And then since then, I also taught at Harlem Grown. So it's a community garden in Harlem. And then presently, I'll put this out there for anybody listening to the podcast who might be in working, at, working at an organization or know an organization that might be interested. But currently, I'm looking to be able to teach at an organization that might have a suicide prevention program. I would love to provide trauma-sensitive yoga to such an organization. So I'll just put that out there. Yes, I love that. So <laughs> audience, come on, because <laughs> we are looking for that right match. And um, I know when we find that, it's going to be a great match for your teaching skills, Jessa. And, and I see that coming to fruition in the next year. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate that. And Sometimes it takes a while for us to, yeah. to find those partnerships with three and a half acres, but we, we will get there. We still, even though yoga has been, you know, more and more in the public eye, more studies, um, you know, proving the impacts of yoga, um, especially on trauma. And still, uh, you know, sometimes it takes back a backseat in people's minds to other measures of healing. So hopefully it can be more in people's forefront. And that's one of the things we can do with this podcast. So you have a workshop coming up. We can shout that out even now early in the podcast or in case people don't make it to the end, which we, we hope and know that they will. But the, um, we are involving you more and more in three and a half acres yoga, not just as a teacher, but bringing you on as a board member, which is very exciting. And, and also you are going to be teaching the first of our kind of, we wanted to communicate more community education. And you're going to be teaching a special workshop. Uh, what is the date of that, Jessa? I'm just trying to pull Yeah, it yeah. So it's coming up in a few weeks. I'll be hosting that training on February 8th, and it'll be two hours from 6 to 8 p.m. That's right. Um, 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern time, Thursday, February 8th. You can sign up through the Three and a Half Acres Yoga website, threeandhalfacres.org, and we'll put this all in the show notes. And this is open to anyone. Um, it's a virtual workshop and um, it's going to be a special workshop on um, suicide awareness. So just maybe this is a good time to kind of share with our listeners what makes this such you know an important topic for you. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll go ahead and share that. This is a topic that for me has personal and professional meaning. Um, so the personal meaning, and I might share a little bit more of my story throughout the podcast, but I myself am a survivor of, a, of multiple suicide attempts. And during my experience with suicidality, I didn't always receive like the best the best care. And so I ended up going into the field of clinical psychology and have always felt very passionate about learning all that I could to be able to respond in the most effective, empathic manner to individuals who are living with suicidal thoughts or healing from a suicide attempt. And I believe at the core of my being that every single person can play their own role in helping to make sure that individuals are not dying by suicide. I think this is something that can really be prevented. 
and that there are just really some core skills that can be so helpful for people to learn to be able to better identify when somebody might be experiencing suicidal thoughts and be better equipped to know how to respond. Because unfortunately, there's a tendency that a lot of fear, and it makes a lot of sense, right? The idea of suicide can be so scary and so fear can really show up. And it can come from a place of deeply caring, but when we're responding to somebody who is suicidal, from a place of fear, it tends to shut down the conversation. Mm. And we really know that it's it's silence that kills. And so it's really key for people to develop skills to open the doorway to make people who are living with suicidal thoughts or to create a space for people living with suicidal thoughts to feel safe enough to come forward and talk about their lived experience. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're speaking to this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you'd share a little more about what was going on in your life or mind and how were people responding and what do you wish they would have responded? Yeah, yeah. So I will start with, I actually first started experiencing suicidal thoughts at a pretty young age. I was a child. I was actually only six years old. And it, it really coincided with the time that my my parents went through a divorce. I ended up starting at a new school. They had a pretty chaotic divorce and it had a pretty big impact, I would say, on the way that I showed up. I became very, very quiet, uh, very, very shy. I r- was really labeled that way. And mm. I think it really, it came at the cost of me feeling a sense of connection, of feeling a sense of belonging, which can be a pretty big risk factor for suicidality. And at such a young age, I I really didn't even understand the meaning of what I was experiencing. But I somehow was able to realize at a pretty young age that it was taboo and that it wasn't really socially acceptable for me to openly speak about what I was internally experiencing. And so as far as others' responses, I did share a bit with my my mom when I was having crises with what I was experiencing. But in general, I, I really stayed quiet. And I'll give a couple of examples of, of some responses that I think really exacerbated that stigma. So at a pretty young age, kind of as a result of my parents' divorce, there was, there was some family therapy, then it shifted to individual therapy. And I remember having several experiences at the onset of therapy of having the therapist have me sign what is called a no suicide contract, which is this form that is saying that, you know, so long as I am in treatment with you, I'm not going to do anything to harm myself. And on the surface, it might sound like there could be some really maybe good intent there, but research shows that the impact of that is actually that it's very silencing, that it doesn't really feel like there's space to safely Mm -hmm. speak about suicidal thoughts. And so, you know, even being in therapy, I was like, I am not going to speak about what I'm actually internally experiencing. And then I was also very aware of just the language and dialogue about suicide. So 
there are a lot of very stigmatizing myths out there. For example, comments about, you know, suicide being selfish. And I heard that from people in my close circle, whether they be friends, whether they be teachers or occasionally family members making comments about suicide being selfish, suicide being cowardly. And so I felt so much shame about that. But from a pretty young age, I I really didn't ever speak or confide to anybody about what I was experiencing. And it's it's actually interesting. I remember having the thought pretty young about, you know, if anybody found out that I had these thoughts or that I made a suicide attempt, that I would be so embarrassed that I, I don't think I could live through that. And it's so interesting to me, actually, or I, I would say maybe I just couldn't have ever imagined at such a young age that one day I would actually be able to openly speak about that experience that at one point had felt so, so shameful because there wasn't space to, to have an open dialogue about, about my suicidal thoughts. Well, that's a pretty big journey for you, like empowering that you have some spaces at least that you feel like you can share your story, which was your biggest fear and secret. Yep. Yeah. And I, and I'm hearing some things like secrets and not belonging. You know, you said you felt like you didn't belong and it sounds like, you know, that you didn't, you didn't have that person you could share with. We would hope that therapy would be that. And you didn't feel safe in that therapeutic relationship to share what was really going on. Yeah, exactly. I think that was definitely something that was a really big barrier to being able at that time to start the the process of healing. It didn't occur till much later, but I, I was very fortunate that in my early 20s, around age 23, I ended up being able to work with a therapist who, a psychologist who was a suicide attempt survivor herself and was open about that. And that just simply knowing that fact made me feel so much safer that, okay, this is somebody who I can really confide in and be open with about my my experience. Um, I do want to put that out there. Like, unfortunately, there is still a lot of stigma that exists about suicide, but we're working to break that down. And there are, you might have to really do your research, but there are mental health clinicians out there yeah. who do have the skill and the empathy to hold space, to have an open dialogue uh, about suicide. It is something that, you know, I was just saying this to a friend who's looking for a clinician um, for her kid. And I was like, she was feeling a lot of pressure to find the the right one immediately. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to break, break that down a little like, yeah, that would be great. And you might have to try out a few, you know, <laughs> um, to find that right fit for you and your family. So it's the same thing I would always say about yoga to people <laughs> that get turned off the first time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Even my, myself being in the mental health field and being in the mental health field, seeking out like my own provider to be able to work with, I've definitely found, yeah, it takes several tries oftentimes to find that person who intuitively feels like a good fit. It seems like suicide attempts are 
becoming more prevalent at that young age. Are there some things that folks, I mean, I think one thing that I'm hearing from you that we can do, each of us listening now, is to really help to break down that stigma. I think the fear that you were describing earlier, right? Maybe we're afraid that if we do destigmatize it, that we're somehow allowing folks, right? And you're saying that's not it at all, is actually feeling more and more constricted in that secret and that stigma that made you more prone to those attempts, if I'm understanding that correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I I would say that, you know, that fear of destigmatizing it, I think there can be this fear of having a conversation about suicide and that if you start to openly speak about it, I'm going to call it a myth because research backs up that this isn't the case. But the common fear is that if you start to openly speak about it, that that's going to put the idea in into somebody's head. And Research just simply doesn't support that. It really shows that the best, most effective way to really be able to show up for somebody living with suicidal thoughts is to be pretty direct and have an open conversation mm. about suicide. So what what should we be looking for? Would we know if a friend or family member is considering suicide? Are there some you know, common signs? And then how would you um, suggest like broaching that conversation? Yeah. So when it comes to the common signs, there are some common signs. You might notice uh, a shift in behavior. And what's interesting is it could be a shift in behavior where on the one hand, it might be becoming more reclusive. But on the other hand, it could be something like, that person has seemed quite sad and all of a sudden it actually has more energy. Sometimes when some people develop a suicide plan, they feel actually a little bit more a sense of relief. And that can lead to a shift in behavior that might actually look on the surface like it's a more positive shift. So as I'm saying that, uh, I wanna want it to be really clear that yeah, there might be some signs, but it can be so variable that it's actually really important to just keep this open awareness that anybody could be experiencing these thoughts and what that looks like outwardly could be so different from one person to another. And so it's really important to just have that awareness that it's there's no one size fits all approach and the signs can look very different from one person to another. Yeah, that's good to know. And that makes a lot of sense you know, we're not going to catch everything as friends and family. And I think folks have to, the friends and family have their own process, right? Of dealing with their trauma, their, you know, capacities to be with their loved ones. What did they see? What didn't they see? And so forth. It's good to understand that a big change of behavior could be something that we might want to, yeah. you know, just question a little more. And what would that approach look like? Yeah, yeah. So I would say that the first part here is if you intuitively suspect, hmm, there's been some shift here. I'm wondering if my loved one is okay. To come into a conversation with that person from a place of curiosity, from a place of concern from a place of really wanting to hear their story 
and understand and really just simply being willing to listen. And while it is important if you see and are hearing, oh, there's signs that this person is experiencing suicidal thoughts to, to ask the direct question, you want to first establish trust before you do so, especially keeping in mind the fact that, right, there's so much, so much stigma surrounding suicidality. Helping to establish that trust is going to first look like just taking some time to hear their story and show that you are not going to shy away from mm-hmm. hearing those signs that the person is experiencing emotional pain. So often with suicidality, the suicidal thoughts really represent that person's best attempt to cope with what they're experiencing to be overwhelming psychological pain. Mm-hmm. And it feels so, so, so big that they perceive that the best way for me to escape this may be suicide. At the same time, I do want to share that if in that conversation, the person is sharing with you some signs that they might be experiencing these thoughts, it's important to keep in mind that there's actually a lot of hope there. Because if that person is open to sharing that with you, and it might it's likely at first going to be very indirect because of the stigma surrounding suicide. It's oftentimes not feeling safe for that person to be so direct about, oh, I'm having thoughts about suicide. It's mm-hmm. probably not going to look like that. And if they're sharing anything that's indicative that they might be experiencing that, there's hope because number one, they are still alive. So even if they don't have a lot of hope, there's still some that they are engaging in a conversation with you in which they're able to confide and trust you enough to let you know that they're really struggling and experiencing that psychological pain. And so as you listen to their story and you start to hear that there's some of these signs, once you feel like there's been some level of trust established, you've shown that you're able to sit with the pain that they're sharing with you, at that point, it's important to ask very directly, are you having thoughts about suicide? Due to fear, there can be a tendency sometimes to ask in more of an indirect way. And if it's not really direct, it's unfortunately going to be very unlikely that that person's going to feel safe enough to respond authentically and in an honest manner. I'm wondering to get to such a, um, and thank you for that, Jessa, that's like some great advice. I'm just Actually, I'll just reflect that back and make sure I kind of got it that I'm I'm hearing, you know, first some patience and creating some space for the person to be heard and just being with, being with them, letting them tell their story and listening in a non-judgmental way. And then if you are hearing signs of suicide, thoughts of suicide, that that you really ask directly. Are you having these thoughts? And I think that's that's really good advice. Are there some prevalent situations that would get someone to the point of feeling so, you know, in so much pain psychologically, you know, that they would be considering suicide? Is it often a a result of a childhood trauma? You know, what are some of the things that cause this? Yeah, that's a great question. Again, with this response, I will really emphasize that there are so many different factors that could impact somebody experiencing suicidality. 
it could be a really big transition in your life. For example, losing a job, losing a loved one. It could be related to, yeah, having a history of of trauma. I'm also going to add here, because I think this part is really important, that there tends to be a dialogue about suicidality that views it more through the lens of this being an individual uh, mental health issue. And I think it's important to name that there's actually a lot of systemic factors that could also increase the risk of experiencing suicidal thoughts or making a suicide attempt. So like, for example, when you look at rates of suicide attempts, for example, it's well documented that uh, Latina adolescents have much higher rates of suicide attempts. Indigenous communities, certain indigenous communities have much higher rates of, of death by suicide. Also, research shows the LGBTQ community also has higher rates of death by suicide. So there's this piece of when you look at society as a whole and the way we treat different communities, that in and of itself can place some individuals potentially at a higher risk for experiencing suicidal thoughts. I think that it's important to hold in mind that it's not necessarily always an individual mental health issue and that a lot of different factors can come together to increase the risk that somebody might be experiencing suicidal thoughts. That is such an important point, right? I mean, access to resources and being comfortable even to go to a therapist, how that is perceived within a community and many communities have every right to not feel safe in therapeutic yeah. environments. And even the therapeutic environment as that, like you're, you're expressing that kind of, you know, looking at problems from an individualistic way where not all cultures do look at um, problems in that way. Um, fear of being not understood or misunderstood or not being able to find a therapist or a clinician who looks like you, you know, um, who could, you could really relate to, like, you know, you express being able to relate to this one clinician, all of those factors. And I'm sure so many more play into that. What you're expressing there is just so, so very important. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember when we were talking briefly before recording no, Jessica, something sticks out to me that you mentioned, which was this overwhelming feeling of helplessness and choices becoming more and more limited. Mm-hmm. Could you speak to that a little bit? You know, it sounds like you did reach out a little bit, but you couldn't get the help. Yeah. Please, please expand on that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's really important. This idea that when it comes to experiencing suicidal thoughts, what tends to happen is this, uh, you could call it cognitive constriction, which is this idea of their feeling like there's this narrowing of possibilities within your life. And what happens is you tend to see less and less options available to you. And I I think I'm going to give an example here that was so helpful to me at the time when I was experiencing suicidal thoughts myself and had the opportunity to work with a clinician who was really 
she was a suicide attempt survivor herself and really created the space for me to be open with her. And so at the time, I had had this dream of hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, it's this trail that goes from Mexico to Canada. And it was, I, I had this dream. And at the same time, I'm experiencing these suicidal thoughts that hmm. were getting more intense. And my therapist one day said to me, and it was one of the most impactful comments she had made. She just goes, you know, you could go hike that trail. And when you finish hiking, the option of suicide is still available to you. And, you know, on the outside, that might sound like that was so obvious. But for me, at the height of my suicidal thoughts, that was not obvious at all. And that felt so relieving because what I want to share here, and this is really important as somebody who wants to help an individual living with suicidal thoughts, is to recognize this idea of there being this paradox when it comes to suicidality of when you have chronic suicidal thoughts, the suicidal thoughts themselves are something that sometimes provides such a great relief because it's this idea of, I have a lot of pain. I need to know I have a way out that sometimes those thoughts themselves give you the relief in that moment that you need to keep on going on and living. And so it was important to me at the time when I'm having more intense suicidal thoughts that that option still be available to me. But my therapist did something beautiful in that moment where it's like, she's letting me know that option's still available to me while also reminding me that there's another option available to me at the same time to go on living and to go on living in a way that felt meaningful to me at the time. Uh, that's another thing that's so important in this work is to help individuals living with these thoughts connect with what their reasons for living are because it's in that cognitive constriction in that narrowing of possibilities that you start to lose that connection of what makes my life meaningful. And it doesn't have to be huge. It can be, it can be something small. It can be something big, but just even if there's one thing that you can identify, whether that be, your animal, whether that be something like the hope that tomorrow could be better, tapping into those reasons for living is really important. Being in a helper role and wanting to support a loved one with suicidal thoughts. Oh, that's such a good one. And finding meaning and connecting to deeper meaning. I mean, I imagine that's something that's lost or close to lost a time of high suicidality. Yes, absolutely. It's it's something that you can get really disconnected from those reasons for living, but the sense of purpose in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, even if we haven't had those thoughts, I can certainly relate to, you know, those times in my life and even recently <laughs> where, you know, I had a vision of my life a certain way. And that vision was so strong that it's it wasn't gonna work out. And I I I struggled for a few weeks to like remember what other visions and paths <laughs> that um that I had before, you know? And none of them felt as vibrant or exciting mm. or like I couldn't find the joy in things that I used to. That used to bring me a lot of joy. So I feel like I can relate in that way. Yeah. And I so appreciate you sharing that because what you 
we're able to tap into there, I think is so important in the sense that like, even if you haven't experienced suicidal thoughts, that being able to identify when was a moment in my life when I was struggling to connect with what my sense of purpose is. Yeah. That is definitely a way to tap into the empathy that's necessary to better understand that experience of an individual who is experiencing suicidal thoughts. And I'll share something else, which feels like extremely vulnerable to share, but as you're being so vulnerable, and that is a little bit of this podcast, is that I have also experienced at times where I felt really lost and losing options and struggling, more accident prone, like of an accident could happen. And I wonder if this is anything that is common or that you could speak to or if it resonates in any way. If not, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting with that because that that's really interesting. And, you know, I, I'm curious if, as you're sharing that, if there might be, and this is totally just a hypothesis, but if there might be a link to, I've become so curious about how there's this emerging research that is really showing that people who have made a suicide attempt and are living with suicidality, have a deficit in interoceptive awareness, which is being aware of your body's internal cues to let you know, hmm, is there danger? Am I safe? Am I in pain? And so having that awareness is is key to be able to keep yourself safe and, and not have an accident. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's very interesting because, you know, and for folks who didn't listen, can listen back. We had David Emerson on who speaks to the science behind um, trauma-informed yoga and created the term trauma-sensitive yoga. And um, interception is like one of his major things that he's studied, which is actually lacking in folks who have been through trauma. And we know that because in the in the three and a half acres yoga training, we talk a lot about that, you know, how to help folks to develop that again, right? to feel yes. like what feels good in your body, you know, to develop sensation and awareness of body and space again. So there can be this kind of numbing or cutting off that happens, um, which is the body's brilliant way, right, of protecting us from feeling all the feelings. Absolutely. Yeah. And and aligned with that. So one of the major theories of the different factors that make an individual at risk for experiencing suicidality, there's this theory called the interpersonal theory of suicide developed by Thomas Drainer. And he identifies three different factors that contribute to increased risk for suicidality, which are uh, perceived burdensomeness, thwarted belongingness. And then the third is related to interoception, mm-hmm. which is, it's called acquired capability. And it's essentially becoming more and more disconnected from cues of danger. Because, you know, in making a suicide attempt, you go against your body's most basic su- survival instinct. Yes. And so it requires you to really disconnect from all of those interoceptive cues, which is why I, I strongly believe that trauma-sensitive yoga can be such a really powerful resource for 
individuals, you know, healing from a suicide attempt because it's working to help you to reconnect to your body's internal messages to you. And in responding to that, that was so key for me in healing from my own experiences with suicidality was through the practice of Ashtanga yoga, as I heightened my own awareness of all of these messages my body was communicating to me and ultimately befriended my body, this possibility of suicide became more and more and more foreign to me. And it's really beautiful. I, at one point in my life, I hadn't believed it would be possible to reach a point of not living with chronic suicidality. And I can now say for five years now, I have been able to, if a thought emerges, I, I just simply don't take it seriously. And I really attribute the, the practice of Ashtanga yoga to my, my healing journey from suicidality. That is just incredible, Jessa. And I, I love that you're making that link. I think embodiment and feeling the body in space is one of the core elements of Ashtanga yoga, especially the way I teach it. You know, it was, yeah. it was never about pose perfection. It was always about, can you feel the shape of your body in this position, yeah. um, in this position, in this shape? So, and this is just making you like, I'm, I'm having a lot of bells going off. It's making a lot of sense to me, yeah. this connection. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I so experienced that being a student of yours. And there was also this piece that was so powerful and feeling like it's more about feeling your body rather than having it be in the and I'm saying this with quotes, the, the correct position, and that it also really helps to learn how to respond in a way that is compassionate rather than perfectionistic. Yeah. And that part is also so key, right? Because underlying perfectionism is like this incredible harshness, this oftentimes disconnection from the body when it comes to any kind of embodied practice. So that was such an important lesson for me that I felt like was definitely, definitely something that slowly was instilled to me every time I came to your class. And, and thank you for that. And yeah, and another kind of connection is happening for me when I'm thinking about perfectionism itself as a kind of narrowing of possibilities, mm, uh, you yeah. know, like it's very, it's constrictive and those high standards and that, and you're speaking to like the softening and, you know, folks go into yoga spaces and they can be, they can go the other way. Right. Um, so it, yeah. the practice, like, you know, many modalities can be harmful or healing depending on, you know, how it's being offered. Um, yeah. I appreciate you mentioning that and going along with that. I will share, like I was exposed to yoga uh, long before I found Ashtanga, and I had had definitely some varied experiences, and it never really resonated with me intuitively. Like this is something I want to keep doing uh, until I found the practice of Ashtanga, and so I think that that's also important to be aware of that the way the yoga is being taught is definitely going to impact whether or not it has the capacity to be healing for in this context, you know, individuals who are healing from a suicide, suicide attempt or living with suicidal thoughts. And I, I want to mention here, since I know this is the podcast where you're so often talking about trauma, I, I, I want to name that 
a suicide attempt is inherently traumatic. You know, you're going against your body's most basic survival instinct. And it can be quite terrifying. And unfortunately, because of the stigma, oftentimes the follow-up care doesn't allow people the space to feel a sense of safety, to be able to share their story when they feel ready to do so, to receive the support that they need. And so knowing that there is a lot of trauma taking place almost inevitably after a suicide attempt, it's, it really is important that uh, if you're wanting yoga to be a resource afterwards, that the teacher is trauma sensitive. I'm really glad you named that, Jessa. That would be very traumatic. And, you know, we know that accidents are traumatic, right? We know that um, being involved in a in a, a tornado, right, in a weather situation, in a attack. So when this is a, you know, it's a, it is an attack on your body and how, how you put it, your, you know, your natural instinct to survive. And that would be very traumatic for the whole mind-body system, right, the organism. Um, and confusing as trauma is on the system. So that makes a lot of sense. And it just makes a lot of sense why the the right application of yoga would be helpful and could be really helpful, again, by the right teacher and the right style. What else um, was and continues to be helpful for you as we sort of near the end of the hour? I'm curious like about other practices, about your sort of your ongoing mental health hygiene. Is anything popping up for you? Hmm, Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. Um, (laughs) I think there's a number of things for me and what my mental health hygiene looks like definitely shifts and evolves. The one thing that is definitely stable, as you probably know, has been my Ashtanga practice. But I will share, so recently, over the summer, I picked up the ukulele. So I've been taking classes for about six months now, and I really love it. And one of the things that's been really beautiful is being a mental health practitioner, psychologist myself, that so often I love the work that I do. And there's moments where it, of course, can be heavy. And so it's been really beautiful to have this instrument that I love that it it weighs a pound. I can bring it (laughs) with me anywhere. And to just be able to have that ability that if I notice there was a session where maybe I'm carrying some of the energy with me and I am needing to be able to kind of reset. I have found that picking up my ukulele and just playing, even if it's just for five minutes, it's like a total reset for my system. So that's been a really beautiful, meaningful practice for me. That's very exciting. Yeah. (laughs) I think like trying something new, you know, starting an instrument, especially later in life is just, I don't know, I get a real like giddy smile from that. I'm like always trying to find something creative and weird and new to learn. And yeah, we, we recently picked up a piano that a neighbor was basically giving away and I'm hoping I can find some time and commitment to uh, to play. And um, I think things that I just like that. stimulate us and bring joy. Yeah. And like work different parts of our brain. You know, there's just, there's just so much in there and learning an instrument. 
And that might be something different for someone else. Sorry, go on. Oh, I was just saying, yeah, it's such a wonderful form of expression, of uh, especially music in particular. I think it's really beautiful that you're able to sometimes, if there's emotions you're holding on to, be able to tap into that and express it in a way that can feel so cathartic. Love that. Anything else, Jessa, that I didn't ask you about today that you know you felt you feel compelled to share? Yeah, let me see here. I think that I really just would love to emphasize that this training that I'm going to be doing on February 8th, that I really want to just let everybody listening know you are so welcome to attend. And that for me, I really want it to be as beneficial as possible. I'm really putting a lot of thought into how can I, in the two hours, make this training be a way that you can walk away feeling a sense of knowing that if a loved one, if a friend, if somebody in my community is experiencing these thoughts, that I now have some skills to be more aware of, are they experiencing these thoughts? And how do I show up for that loved one in a way that is going to be empathic and create a space of having the trust to engage in such a, it can be a heavy conversation, but it's a heavy conversation that there's so much light there because of the fact that that person is having that vulnerability to share. And as I said before, it's the silence that kills. So the moment that you open up that conversation, there's a lot of hope that emerges. And so I'm really looking forward to this training and to having the opportunity to work with people who want to show up and learn these skills. Yeah, I really think folks are going to learn so much from you, Jessa. I learned so much from you today being in conversation. I think we we have an obligation, you know, to to learn more about this topic and all of us to become a little better at ending the stigma, a little better at sitting with people's pain, right? Like Mm-hmm. You know, you're. I think that was one of the big things that I heard today. Is like we can't be afraid of it because that fear, that turning away, is actually creating more pain. So building capacity to sit with another human being and hear their story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's a key part of the work, and and the good news, it's anybody can build this skill, and simply exposing yourself to having these conversations is a key part of breaking down the stigma and helping you to feel better equipped to show up for for loved ones, for your community when they most need you to. Beautiful. So I'll just say it again, that your workshop training is on Thursday, February 8th from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be a virtual session. So folks can register through threeandhalfacres.org. It'll also be in the show notes. If you are part of the Three and a Half Acres uh, Trauma-Informed Yoga Teacher Training, which is happening that first weekend of February, um, you are automatically enrolled in this session. But folks who aren't doing our full trauma-informed yoga teacher training can sign up for this single session. And we hope to make more things like this available for the community. So Jessa, keep on thinking what your next workshop topic will be because I know you have a lot of expertise and I'm sure we'll be calling on you some more. And 
Thank you for sharing so candidly and holding, you know, both roles as a, a survivor of suicide attempts and as a clinician in this conversation. I really, I feel, you know, very honored that you um, chose this platform to be open on and that you feel comfortable with me. And um, it's just, it was a very informative conversation for me. And I know that the listeners will also gain so much from this. Yeah. Thank you, Laura, so much for creating a space where I was able to have this conversation. It, it feels it feels so meaningful. And I think that, like I said, you know, at one point, never having imagined I would be able to be open about this, it also feels in some ways it's just uh, healing and a really beautiful experience to be able to, to have this conversation. And I hope from the bottom of my heart that anybody listening out there you know, if you are living with suicidal thoughts, I just want you to know that there are resources out there available to you, that you're not alone, and that you absolutely deserve to have a space to be able to share your story. Just uh, that's such a great way to end. I hate to put one more thing on it, but I just wonder, are those hotlines, are there any standard resources that we want to point out or... Uh, yes, I'm, I'm glad that you asked. Uh, I, I will definitely mention, so the National Crisis Line, luckily they recently changed the number to just be so much easier to remember. And that number is 988. So if you're wanting immediate support, that is a good resource. And then if you're looking for a mental health service provider, if you go on to NYC Well, there's a way to search kind of based upon having insurance or not having insurance. And so that could also be a resource. Lara, I don't know if you have any recommendations for if there's a listener who's interested in being able to access uh, trauma-sensitive yoga as a potential resource. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for those. The hotline, I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't give a couple tangible resources for folks. And you know, again, I would just um, encourage people to go to threeandhalfacres.org and take a look at the programs we have right now. And I know we will be starting up, actually something I have to get on, <laughs> um, starting up some virtual online classes again, trauma-sensitive classes, probably in a weeknight evening. So look for those. They'll be donate, pay what you can, or, you know, if you can't, we, we want you there. And we should have those soon, February or March, when our new cohort graduates. Thanks so much, Jessa. Thanks so much, Lara. I really enjoyed our conversation. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through centuries we will collide and the light will bend we will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land